Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. My name is CJ. We're joined today by two leading entertainment dealmakers and intellectual property experts, and we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and creativity. We live in a science fiction world right now. The impacts are accelerating, and they're very, very real for people who make things. Simon Pullman is an entertainment attorney based in New York, doing a lot of amazing work in TV, film, podcasting, and who is fascinated by all things interactive. This is Simon's third appearance on the podcast. Scott Shoulder is also an entertainment and intellectual property attorney based in New York, focusing primarily on litigation in this space. The goal of this episode in talking with Scott and Simon is really to have a sort of report from the front lines of what the recent advances in AI mean for deal-making, for legal issues, for creators, and pretty much everyone involved in entertainment. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Project Tempest podcast. All right, Scott, Simon, welcome. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. There we go. We say, we say it in, uh, <laughs> in synchronicity. <laughs> <laughs> Now, for our audience, Simon is the one who sounds like his team played in the World Cup. Hey, Scott's team played in the World Cup as as as, as well as best uh, as yes. they could, as best as as best as they as best as they could. Might, yes, uh, my my team is is the team that, that crushed my heart uh, yet again. Um, <laughs> nice. So, so there you go. You could have you could have fed that one into your AI and gotten a very predictable result. So <laughs> excellent. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you both so much for your time. And one of the main things that I'm interested in, so I'm going to do a short intro for everyone just um, to give everyone context. But broadly speaking, over the last few months, I would say, there's been a massive rise in awareness of these AI-driven tools. And there have been waves of AI hype going right back to the 1950s. And it does seem sometimes like about once a decade, the machines pop up and the machines are about to take over and then they kind of go away again. And I'm thinking of things like Deep Blue, which was the chess computer and various other bits. But recently we've seen this enormous spread of these tools like Midjourney, Dali, ChatGPT. And these are sometimes image generators. Recently they are extremely advanced text generators. And my understanding is that there were some technical um, breakthroughs about three or four years ago that have enabled a significant rise in the potential capability of basically AI-driven tools. And I think it's really hard sometimes because we, we are literally living in a science fiction world right now. It's very hard sometimes not to just jump straight to it's Terminator 2, the robots are going to kill us all, the machine war is next month. But then at the same time, you see this thing of people going still, oh, it's just a toy, it'll go away just like blockchain did, it'll be one of these things. And I think one of the great things about having both of you on the podcast is I think you're perfectly positioned as people right in this space, seeing things on the front lines to take us through what is what actually appears to be happening. What are the real implications for people working in these deals in the creative space? And then maybe as we go further through, we can get to a little bit more of the rise of the machines and the Star Trek, but really keeping it quite grounded as to um, what is actually going on with these AI tools, if that works for both of you. Yeah, and as I would imagine, a lot of the people listening to this podcast will, you know, will be aware of. I think we've all seen some pretty remarkable things, you know, coming through in the last couple of months. Be those sort of illustrations and designs that are, you know, uh, those sort of 
evocative of certain types of feels and tones and so forth, or you know, uh, take your inspiration from other sort of forms of IP, or or written pieces, or in fact, you know, some combination of of the of the two of them. Um, there have been a number of projects with people who have created original graphic novels. They're not artists, but now they can do that, um, which is something that you know, somebody like myself who has no artistic talent could do previously. So, so the, the sort of the, the the perspective of Scott and I is is all of these things are happening and we're seeing them, and I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, but what what what's going to be going to be the impact on that on the entertainment? business and what I'm engaged in on a, on a daily basis and then from Scott's perspective and I won't speak for him it's okay yeah but who owns the copyright in that what kind of lawsuits are there going to be you know how do we solve this this mess when somebody takes something takes you know 10 different sources spits it together and then creates a billion dollar property yeah this is a it's kind of a field day for copyright lawyers um, and particularly litigators and, and I do I do advising um, on the copyright side and, and some deal work, but n not too much, mostly on the litigation end of things. And I'm always keeping an eye out for what could go wrong and how is this going to impact my clients on, on the content side and the creative side, but also on the tech side, because we uh, we represent the some of the technologists as well and, and folks who are involved in the creation of these types of platforms. Um, uh, and it's, it's just unendingly interesting. Um, Every day, there's a new story that gets me thinking about how this could impact copyright rights and how ownership is going to be determined and what infringement cases are going to look like. So, you know, whereas Simon is looking at it th kind of through a business angle, I'm looking at it much more through a, a litigation angle and uh, where things fall under the Copyright Act in the U.S., which hasn't been substantially revised in quite a long time and lags well behind technology like it always has. Nice. And, and, and I think that core question of um, cadence and whether regulation can keep up, I think, will be a, a, a crucial part of this. So for me, I think it um, must have been March of last year. I sit down in front of MidJourney, which at the time was a freely available tool. And I type into MidJourney, I say, paint me a scene in the style of Hayao Miyazaki. I'd like a rolling river, some beautiful fields and a really cute hut with a witch coming out of it. And Midjourney is able to quickly generate me some options that look exactly like what I've just described, and that at least a kind of um, um, journey person artist would it would it would take them a day to make. And Midjourney spits this back out at me, and my mind starts going on fire, and I say, "Oh, okay. Well, I'd I'd love something in the style of J.C. Lyon Decker. Let's do that. Let's do this. Let's do this." And very rapidly, at a terrifying speed, I have all of these images that I sort of created working with Midjourney. And this is, as, as Simon was saying, I, I have no artistic talent either. Um, I suddenly have all these things that I feel like I've created and they're beautiful and they're in all these wonderful styles. And then later on, ChatGPT, for instance, a um, very powerful language model, might type in ChatGPT, um, let's, let's write ourselves a comic. Let's write ourselves a comic about a cute little witch in the style of Hayao Miyazaki who goes on an adventure. And working a little bit with ChatGPT over the course of maybe about an hour, I can get pretty close to a comic script that at least is recognizable as a story. So I've got a bunch of beautiful images and I've got a script for a comic and maybe I want to put those two together. What the hell is going on in terms of, did I just make something? 
And does the law think I just made something? You made something. Uh, do you own it, though? That's a, that's <laughs> that's a question. And 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 also, <laughs> does you know Hayao Miyazaki or anybody else you know, have any kind of grounds you know against you? And and that's and that's Scott's domain. And I'll let him talk to it. Very very open and closed. Uh, answer i'm sure it'll take you about 10 seconds to give you a yes or a no. <laughs> yeah right uh well the the only thing that's r- r- fairly clear um in in this grayest of gray copyright areas is the ai itself is probably not going to own the copyright um under under u.s law humans and only humans can own copyright uh that's being challenged uh by uh, at least one person in court right now um but you know that begs the question of well, who is the who is the owner, who is the author? Um, there are a couple of different competing views on this. Um, it uh, you know it could be you, Colin, who put in the prompt. Um, it could be the developer of the algorithm. Uh, you know the OpenAI or Midjourney or Stability AI, um, and some of that is they're playing around with some of that in their terms of terms of use. Uh, different companies take different perspectives on who owns the copyright in terms of use. Um, but as an, uh, as a question of pure copyright authorship, it's really not that clear because you put in some text. You are the author of that text. Um, if you were to take that out separately and if it were long enough and original enough and creative enough to be its own work, whether that be a, a, a short story, a, a poem, um, anything kind of beyond a short phrase, you could have some some argument that it's creative enough to be copyrightable. Um, but the output that's spit out of the computer in response to your text, you didn't make that. The AI made the AI made that. Um, but the AI can't be the author. So this brings us back. It's very circular. It brings us back to the to, to the question. Um, and this is something that the the U.S. Copyright Office is struggling with, uh, and and is thinking about um, talking about graphic novels. There was a graphic novel that um, an author had written. She wrote the story, but the images were created with Midjourney, and she went to register it. She was granted a registration. This was this was big news in the in the AI space. And then um, the Copyright Office went back and said, "Well, wait a minute. Um, we have to go back and revisit our decision because it's not clear to us." how substantial the human authorship was here and so they're they're reviewing their decision to grant her a registration they may may well revoke it um so i think where this is going to come down to is what's the standard for gauging how much human authorship needs to go into a particular work in order for that human to own it if all you're doing is writing and for some reason this has become my favorite example squirrel riding a bicycle um that's text alone is not going to be enough to get you a copyright. Um, and, and you probably didn't put in enough work to generate the image to get any rights in the image. This is just my my reading of the tea leaves. But if you wrote a short paragraph or a story or a poem giving instructions to the AI, query whether that's substantial enough human authorship to give you any rights in the in the image. And that's what I think the Copyright Office is trying to think about, and I'm sure will be the subject of many lawsuits coming up to people for people who want to own their the rights in their works or or lawsuits over um, infringing works and threshold 
um, part of an infringement action is, is, is ownership. Um, so this is going to be litigated, um, and you know, it'll be useful to see what the Copyright Office says uh, this year uh, on the on the question of substantiality of human authorship. But that's that's a it's a fine line to draw, and I don't know where it lands. Yeah, and, 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 and just to speak to the business repercussions for, for this as well, you know, the, the other challenge here is that let's say I'm representing a studio or a network or a streamer, and I want to. I want to option that material, you know, as the first brick in building the squirrel riding a bicycle cinematic universe. Well, I'm going to make you represent that you own that, the rights and, and it's original, and it's protectable and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, and at the present time, I don't believe that you you could make those representations um, without lot risk because it's, it's unsettled under the, the law. Uh, I would also say that the sort of even for people who don't really care about that they just are creating these these pieces right they're doing things they're putting the technologists or the futurists they're creating the stuff they're putting out into the world well yeah but some of those people might be a bit aggrieved if they find out they don't actually protect their work something becomes really really successful and other people are able to basically you know spin off of that and, and, and parlay that that work into other into other things um because that effectively is, you know, the whole point of copyright law in the U.S. at least is to protect creative works in order to to incentivize creation, right? I mean, that's effectively it. I mean, Scott could give you the exact, you know, the exact wording. I'm I'm, I'm sure, but that's effectively it. And if you, and if you don't have that, um, you know, then people could get a shock to the system. Now, look, we have to say over the last ten or fifteen years, really, with the sort of the the internet and, and, and social media becoming popular, you know, there has there been this sort of movement towards this kind of meme culture anyway, right? Of people building on top of other of other people's work and things become part of the culture and things that are te- derived potentially from movies or TV shows suddenly create, you know, garner a whole other context uh, to them. And this, in a certain way, to me, does feel like a continuation of that in, in, a, in a kind of a, a way. But it, it does create a lot of, of headaches because what is a court... If you have a situation where somebody takes a, you know, a, a bunch of prompts based on an existing protected IP and, and, and creates something and, that, and it catches the light, and then you have a whole community who's now creating derivatives on top of that and their own variations on it, right? A character or whatever else. It's going to be a nightmare for a, for a court to to decide. Ownership, infringement, you know, and the thing about this is, is we, as we all know, it's a cardinal rule of, of, of the media entertainment, you know, industry. If there is money, there will be a lawsuit, right? It's all fun and games until you create something that's really, really popular and somebody says, okay, I'm going to claim that. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna produce this game. I'm gonna produce everything else. They make a ton of money from it. There will be claims, and it's gonna be really, really difficult to settle. That's that's really interesting. Thank you both. And it's um, um, it brings up so many questions immediately. As as we were talking about before, this is a a vast minefieldy, swampy asteroid field of topics. But um, first off, it's I suspect to some people it's not obvious that um creative works have to be made by humans so that's a real it's a really interesting just like foundational point on which a lot of this is going to rise and 
by the way, that brings up questions for me about things like procedural generation in video games. But um, Scott, do you want to talk about the the, the the leading the case with the with the what chimpanzee or whatever it was? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can talk about that. Um, uh, Colin, See, you knew exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the chimpanzee <laughs> case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, Colin, go go ahead. I'll, I'll. Oh sure, yeah. Um, um, and and so on on the one end in theory we have a whole idea of creativity as humans are creative creative things can only be made by humans and on the other hand the actual way that these models are created so the way that the model behind mid-journey or chat gpt the way they're formed is broadly speaking you create a little model and you feed it millions and millions of things and in the case of a lot of the image generators, you feed them hundreds of millions of images from across the internet. And it basically absorbs and digests and redigests all of this, and then ultimately is able to perform in the way that it is. Um, and there are also questions around that. But um, so my core question there would be, Simon, you were talking about this being kind of degrees of scale um the last 20 years across the internet we've gotten into remix culture everyone takes things and makes new things out of them we're all inspired by stuff humans as creators anyway we will take the influences that we've been exposed to throughout our lives we will churn them through our own system look at look at star wars right the the, uh, you know exactly hidden fortress yeah Uh, or indiana jones taking you know elements from 30s 40s serial for sure yeah um um on a on a very big scale broadly speaking that's all the ai is doing it's just doing it at a at a rate and a level in a non-human way that is something completely asymptotic from what we've experienced before right so um where does that line come up maybe it comes up with the chimpanzee which i'm fascinated to hear about <laughs> so the the what simon was referring to is a case um that was brought uh colloquially known as the monkey selfie case um, and it's that's literally what it is. Uh, there was a photographer. Who Sorry, was, can I one, one second. Yeah. So far on this call, we've got squirrel on a, on a bicycle and monkey selfie. These are <laughs> these are two winner properties. Let's just keep a list because at the end of this, we're going to make bank. Sorry, Scott, go on. It's okay. <laughs> but who's going to own the copyright? Um, well, questions. It's a, it's a joint work, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, a photographer was. Uh, uh, traveling in in the jungles uh, I, I don't know what country but um he left his camera bag unattended for a little while um and i i don't recall exactly the species of primate uh that discovered the equipment but um it took the camera was playing around with it and ended up taking this amazing selfie of it grinning into the into the camera with a big toothy smile and it was it's just such a wonderful picture it's so funny but the monkey took it um and uh i don't remember who sued on his behalf an animal rights group of of some sort i believe but to to say that he should have the ownership over the photograph now normally uh even though the camera is the thing that is capturing the image it's the photographer that sets up um the uh the the lighting uh, the scenery, the figures, or you know whoever might be appearing in it, or if it's a nature photographer, waits for the right conditions, uh, picks the spot to stand or, or, or lie down or whatever, um, makes all the creative decisions, clicks that camera button, they become the author. Not so much for the monkey. Um, the monkey is not human. Uh, it was 
ruled that the monkey cannot own uh, the copyright in the photograph of itself because it is not human, period, full stop. Um, doesn't matter whether it was a spontaneous selfie or, you know, a staged, uh, you know, fancy photo shoot. Um, he's not he's not a human, so he can't own it. Um, so that's it, the that's really the basic what it comes. And I'm looking. What it, what it I'm looking now. It was a celibus crested macaques. I guess is the yeah. name of the, the the monkey. And in uh, in 2015, Peter filed a lawsuit requesting that the monkey be assigned the copyrights. I wasn't going to say it was Peter, but I was kind of thinking it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, but but no, but you get the, the premise, right? I mean. You know that is is a is a non-human, and the position of the courts is that it cannot own a copyright, and therefore, I mean, what what was the conclusion, Scott? That there's that effectively there's no there's no protectability. Right. It's it, it can't okay. own the yeah it can't own the copyright. Um, essentially, nobody does, and and that's right. one of the that's kind of one of the per, so this, permutations it, of of. It, what can it happen gets us is to the crux of what, what people have been banging on about in my LinkedIn comments for the last 72 hours, which is exactly this. It's a, it, we are going to have to work out degrees of, of, human, of human input. And, uh, and Scott was, was effectively saying that, you know, I, um, you know, I don't know, Seinfeld in space, right? Probably, in, you know, insufficient, but perhaps there is a level, you know, where 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 there is enough there's enough input that I can claim that I actually created it because what you one hears a lot from these evangelists is that it's a tool right it's, it's this is just a tool just like you know a, a, anything anything else um, you know the other thing to think about from from my perspective is just how how this is going to be used in the in the industry because I think that ultimately there's this sort of the end the end game here which is one could see full productions being effectively produced right and, we, and and the three of us have all seen the article which are basically there was a full there was a full script that was done in the style of something like you know uh, the thing or alien or whatever else uh, go get the flamethrower etc you know and and once we move into video and perhaps in combination with sort of virtual assets um something like metahumans right you could see a world where it would be actually possible to create a full audiovisual production but if we dial that back to the sort of the more moderate, you know, sort of, sort of and, and the present and the now, within the entertainment business, everything that people create, concept art, you know, Bibles, uh, story outlines, scripts, are, are created by people, and people are paid for them. And as, on the written side of things, that the initial conception of a work is really important for w, WGA purposes, and I won't go into too much detail. But effectively, the creator of something, which means generally in television, for example, it's the person who writes the pilot script in in in, in a feature. It's who you know who writes that writes the screenplay, and sometimes it can be the story can be separated out from the teleplay. We've we've all seen that within the credits, but it goes to it goes. There are a bunch of entitlements that come from that. Um, you know, separated rights, um, uh, financial entitlements, credit. And we also, and I would also add just, and it's another sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, threshold, you know, presupposition, is that, that ideas are cheap, right? I mean, this is, all, you know, it, it's, it's the execution is, is, is the thing. And so now you're in a world where, especially within 
the way that the entertainment business has worked the last 20 years, moving towards franchises, moving towards, you know, quite often quite formulaic fare, it's going to be much easier for studios rather than engage somebody to do concept art or to, you know, come up with a, with a script based on like a log line that the executive has come up to get much further down the road before they start engaging what I would call professional, you know, talent. And that's going to be the initial piece where maybe a script is, you know, a story outline is generated by IP. And then you bring in the human writer to make the, to actually convert it to a script and give it the kind of the, the human dialogue feel, which I don't think, you know, or, um, or the concept art. And you really generate all of that using AI. And, and then you move to the animation where maybe you have to, you know, bring in the real director and, and so, and so on. But that's a going to, going to, you know, it's going to take jobs and it's going to remove compensation from people because, right, you know, concept art, you know, is a very high-level skill. But I've, th- but I've seen some of these things, you know, on, on some of these sites, and they're incredible. They're, they're truly incredible, you know. Um, some of the things, you know, that are sort of um, Dark Souls, you know, inspired or whatever else. Um, and then as far as the WGA goes, it creates massive, massive headaches for them because now if... If we've got effectively a story outline that's been created by the stu- by the studio feeding in some log lines, right? It's it, it, it exists. Perhaps it's not protectable. That's for the courts to determine, right? We'll get we'll get there, and then you engage a WG writer to write dialogue. Well, that's di- just writing dialogue is 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 typically insufficient to receive credits under the guild. So it's a, it becomes a really, really weird situation. And, you know, the way that things work presently in a big studio movie is you might have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten writers. What happens is you try and make a determination as to who gets credit. All of the credit, all of the writers who are engaged get the credit notice. They get to challenge that. And if they do, we have an arbitration. But, but what happens then? You have to put AI on your notice of tentative writing credits, you know? Or you say, or you take the position that actually that, that underlying AI created or assisted work is more like underlying material, like a book. Well, that can actually implicate separation of rights as well. It's a real headache. And I think I saw it was somebody, um, there's an outlet called Puck, which is, you know, an industry thing. And I think it was maybe Matthew Bologna uh, or Eric Gardner, you know, shared something this morning that somebody had said to them, like, if the guilds don't address it in their upcoming negotiation, then it's going to be the ship will have sailed, and it's going to be a big, big problem for them. And from my amateur assessment, it's something they kind of have to do in concert, because at a certain point in time, the the leverage of the WGA and, and those professional writers is going to slip. And I think that what and, and like down the line, you're going to have things like like computer like AI generated acting performances. So they are they they are totally incentivized. In trying to block this stuff out from any kind of, of, of use in, in, in Hollywood that's more than, you know, minimal post changing or, you know, anything that's substantive because it's really going to cannibalize them. But then, of course, you've got the whole, the further down the road, which is, well, then Hollywood becomes irrelevant because anyone in their bedroom can create the stuff um, using these assets and everything else. And, and that's, that's the, next, the next chapter. It's, there are no easy answers here. Um, but I do feel in a way quite privileged and excited that we can sit here and sort of 
talk about them and prognosticate. <laughs> well, I I really like the idea that as you're saying, there there are very real timelines on this. Um, there are there are entertainment deals being struck as we speak. There are negotiations between the guilds and the studios going on. Um, this this isn't something that we can just sit back and say, okay, in the future there will be these things because as you say. I imagine both of you are having to work extremely hard on at least stopgap solutions and approaches and risk management for these things right now, which is which is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, if I can point to one kind of um, large historical pattern, you were talking about this idea that um, if in a, in a reasonable amount of time, almost everyone has the tools to pretty easily generate something that would look like a AAA video game to us or a big Hollywood movie. We've kind of already been through this multiple times over over the last few decades. The, the, the current absolute explosion in content, which has been going on, um, broadly speaking, since about 2005, comes as a direct result of almost everyone having the tools to create videos and animations and games that were unimaginable 25 years ago. Um, and so there's already been this constant shift, this constant so-called democratization of content production but in the end, there's always someone sitting on top of mass distribution and mass marketing and actually being able to make large amounts of money out of the top of that. We, we still have Avatar cleaning up at the box office, even though normal people now have the tools that were unimaginable 30 years ago to create at least their own single shots and amazing things. So somewhere along this chain, is there just a shift from, yes, the creator tools get more and more amazing You've got more and more leverage in terms of how much one person can do, but there is still something that looks like a movie studio that sits across distribution and global marketing and still actually monetizes these things. Does that ever really go away? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, uh, my personal view is that, yes, you know, we've moved from a scenario where you needed at minimum, you know, to pay you know several hundred dollars for 16 millimeter film and then be able to record the sound yep. separately and everything else to a to a world where you can record something on on, on a on a video camera and, and use after effects and everything else part of, of i think what's happened is that there's been a change in the viewership and a lot of things that when all of this sort of content came in i think there was a little bit of i don't want to you know say the word snobbishness but there was like a, a feeling of well people aren't going to aren't going to want to play this stuff or watch this stuff but clearly people are very very happy to watch you know the youtube content that don't get me wrong looks pretty professional but it's but it's you know it's still it's a different it's more diy you know you've got job cuts and you've got things like that um you know in the gaming world um you know you've got a lot of obviously pixel art which really looks like it could have been done in in the um you know in the in the 90s even something like fortnite until you know, quite recently was fairly sort of rough and, and ready uh, and you know and, and so I, I my feeling there is a little bit of I don't think that AI is going to be creating things that come close to Avatar you know Avatar 2 anytime soon but but I also feel like the audience doesn't necessarily care and I do think that Avatar is a it's really an outlier because it's one that and Top Gun possibly are really the only things in the last 12 months that have have transcended you know this notion of well i'll just wait and watch it at, at, at home and for different reasons you know top gun i think felt like to me like a very real movie like you know it really felt like those planes were really there it felt like a throwback in terms of the plotting to the 
80s or, 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 or early 90s. It was like a, a classic movie. Whereas Avatar was the, uh, the whole other thing, sense of that unique thing of, I must watch this on a screen. The size of the screen, 3D, the variable frame rate and so forth. And very few things nowadays make me feel that, that, that way. Usually I'm quite, quite happy to, to, to wait and, 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 and see. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think in the short run, yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be, you know, having that, a company that has the mass, you know, to, to kind of promote things and, and make something relevant and cut through the noise. But I think long term, you're going to see audiovisual content. And, and you know this, Colin, like in the gaming, you know, business, something very, very small and indie can find a huge audience. Yes through word of mouth and through the community forming around this. And I can see somebody coming up with something. It, it, most of it's going to be junk. But I, 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 I can see in the next 10 years a major entertainment property emerging that somebody's created using AI um, that, form, that a community is formed around. It probably does become collaborative. And all of these things that people have been talking about, you know, in terms of the, the remix and the mashing up and, and 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 these you know and this kind of collab but that's a nightmare that's a nightmare from a business monetization and copyright perspective this is a really interesting point and 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 scott this is exactly where i need your advice so within the next 10 years or the time frame that that simon's talking about i have created what we're going to informally call seinfeld in space with the squirrel on a stick <laughs> and this is absolutely incredible what a what a magical experience for millions of people around the world i created it in my bedroom um all of these questions are thrown up by the success who owns it how is it monetized where is my audience um and at some point between right now and me creating this some body of case law and some intervention by the copyright office and some amount of regulation and legislation will presumably have formed around all these questions um will it form fast enough and in the meantime how do you mitigate against the risks that that throws up um i think it's may maybe it's just me being cynical but um will it will it form fast enough probably not um as as we were saying before the uh law always lags behind technology and the current copyright act in the u.s uh was enacted um in 1978 and went into effect in January 1st, 1978. Now there have been... That's almost literally before the entire computer game industry ever existed. Exactly. Now it was amended in 1998 and a couple of other times to account for, quote, the digital millennium, um, but there hasn't been a significant um, amendment to it since, and I don't see that happening anytime soon with the Congress we have now or the Congress I imagine we'll have for eight or 12 years from now. Um, so I think that's going to be tough. I think a lot of this is going to be dictated by case law. Um, you know, judges uh, determining what the existing law means uh, when applied to new uh, and interesting sets of facts using uh, prior cases as analogies, basically. It's kind of the best you can do in, in this situation. Um, I think uh, there's going to have to be so, so there will be some guidance from the Copyright Office. We, we, we know this. Um, and I think the courts will, uh, will likely have to defer to that pretty heavily. Um, the Copyright Office is a, um, 
it's, it's technically, a, it's within the Library of Congress, so it's an executive branch agency. Um, so its pronouncements are not binding on the courts, which are part of the, are a part of the judicial branch, um, but they are considered persuasive. So courts will give it serious consideration. Um, I think what, what we'll probably see is that the Copyright Office will come up with some, you know, regulations or, or they put out circulars, sometimes um, newsletter type things that give guidance on, on specific issues. Um, there will be some form of guidance about, about AI. Um, they, it's, it, it's on the top of their list of things to do in 2023 is, is, my, is my understanding from, from what I've read. Um, and I think it's going to have to be a balancing act like we talked about before about um, how much human involvement was there. Um, and where do you draw that line? And things like this, like fair use, uh, the the other notoriously gray area of copyright law, it it really is fact sensitive, and it's on a case by case basis. So, you know, does squirrel riding a bicycle count as original enough to be copyrightable? I mean, the phrase itself certainly doesn't. Um, and the idea is not because ideas are not copyrightable under under U.S. law. Um, but if you you know, add a couple more words to that, add a couple more sentences to it, give a few more specific instructions. Where do you draw the line? A detailed gonna... backstory with his with the psychological underpinnings of the, of, of the squirrel. It is it, both of his parents were murdered in front of him coming out of the movie. <laughs> I was I was just gonna say there's some, out of the some, some horrible trauma in his background that required him to to learn how to ride a bicycle. Well, well, um, let me ask you this, Scott, because I because I, I, I I'm, I'm just as I'm thinking in real time and I was doing a little bit of googling on the side because I just want to put this to you as as an interesting thing. We have the timeline that Colin's talking about, right? And we've got like the, the next ten years of um, of adoption of this technology. The other thing that's going to happen in the next 10 years is a number of very, very famous properties, or at least parts of them, are going to go into the public domain. Mm -hmm. What is going to happen when you have those two things colliding? Um, wow. Yeah, that's an interesting scenario. Um, so uh, Steamboat Willie just went into the public domain, uh, the original Mickey Mouse um, short, eight minutes short. Um, when something goes into the, something like that goes into the public domain, it's very limited to that specific work. So the Mickey with the, you know, red pants and white gloves and whatever, he's off the table. You still can't use him. The black and white one with the longer nose who tortures animals and does all kinds of other strange things on this uh, um, uh, river vessel, uh, he's he's up for grabs. You can show it publicly. You can download it. You can send it to somebody. Uh, you can make a derivative work out of it. So to Simon's point, you could, uh, at least in theory, and, and if the technology was available, feed it through some sort of AI engine and say, turn Steamboat Willie into um, you know a uh, a horror film uh, where uh, Steamboat Willie is possessed by a demon and goes on a killing spree, and you know, but you. But you couldn't bring Goofy into that, right? You couldn't bring Pluto into that. They couldn't be victims of this uh, uh, demonic uh, mouse. Um, it's 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 only limited to that property. So I think where you're going to run into problems is that people are going to think there's more on the table than there actually is. And they're going to say, oh, I have all these great tools to be able to make my own thing out of Mickey Mouse, Sherlock Holmes, whatever it is. But they're probably going to overreach. 
unless they are you know sufficiently informed about the limits of what's actually in the public domain um so this that that's that, there will be litigation over that this is this gets to the to the real crux to me of, of one of the most interesting aspects of this and by the way i would point everyone to the actual um trailer for the winnie the pooh film um, um film blood and honey which came out last year which is enlightening um so less than 10 years say a year and a half there's there's been a few cases come up there's some stuff but really the regulators haven't caught up no one quite knows what's going on um i'm a pretty well-established creator i'm i'm not jj abrams but it's not my first rodeo either and i come to both of you simon and scott i'm deeply excited i go guys i was up all night a little while ago mashing up crazy shit with my ai i came up with this thing it's kind of it's kind of seinfeld meets winnie the pooh meets sherlock holmes meets all these bits all together and using my AI tools, I've, I've actually made a, a short on YouTube and I've made a really rudimentary game. But guys, the thing is, this is blowing up. I've got 50,000 people playing the game. I've got 100,000 views on YouTube. Guys, this is a thing. Now, as my advisors, I want to make some money out of this. I want this to happen. Um, the actual origins of it are, frankly, a little murky in terms of exactly what I was doing at 2 o'clock <laughs> in the morning with those AI tools. But what do we do here, guys? How how do you as my advisors what what kind of approach do we take in the midst of all this uncertainty where i've got something that seems like it's working but it's a bit of a mashup because that to me is is, is i mean obviously yeah. this is going to happen in some form I mean, look, from my perspective there's a legal there's a legal and a business aspect to this right and um from the legal perspective and i'm gonna you know let scott opine on this but you know i would probably want to know exactly what the process was literally you know what what we would do is we would probably sit them down and make them take us through step by step and give us all the information as to how how it was put together using the tools what was actually fed in what the prompts were what you already had you know and, and so forth and then to get a get a sense there and then we would also probably on the other end look to see what what changes we can make to mitigate risk you know what the terms of service of the platform say etc as far as the business side of it, you know, it gets to, well, I think about this, this the, the way you're talking, Colin, around a lot of this, I think about like YouTube and the, the dancing baby case and all of this, right? Which yeah. is that, you know, somebody's going to be made an example of here. But but with a lot of these technologies, there is a kind of a beg for forgiveness type of a type of an approach. And, you know, I think what we would be doing here is we'd be wanting to, as ever, and this is really going to our role, I think a lot of people see lawyers as they're there to say no, right? And that's part of our job. It's to protect you. It's to, it's to mitigate you, your risk. But what we would be looking at is we would be looking at, I think, the, you know, the, the liability, the risk, how we can minimize that, that exposure versus what the upside is, what, the, what other opportunities and notoriety there, you know, there could be. If you've done that, well, maybe you would now be a hot commodity to go and be engaged by Disney and Activision Blizzard and Sony and all these other companies to do similar things for for, for, for them and we can make a deal or we can we can call, we can always I mean Scott Scott and I are, you know we work on things you know fairly infrequently but you know he comes in and helps me out with things and like you know and, and you can always make try to make a deal so we would maybe identify the sources okay can we come to a commercial solution here where we pay a revenue split and everything and everything else but it, but first of all it really comes down to what is your your risk and your liability and your exposure 
I mean, Scott, it, it, somebody came to you. I mean, what, what, what would be your thought, thought process around that? Well, you're absolutely right that the first thing you need to do is, is fact gathering and get as much information about the creating creation process as possible um, and understand where everything came from, do an assessment of what is in the public domain and what is not. Um, and then the other thing that I think would be critical when you're dealing with something that combines various um, elements of different properties, some in the public domain, some not, um, is to do a fair use review. Um, so this is kind of like a pre-publication, pre-broadcast review that you would do, um, you know, with a script or a, a book, uh, a podcast, a movie, um, to make sure that there's nothing in there that would infringe copyrights, trademarks, would be defamatory, that kind of thing. Um, and, and we would have to go through an analysis uh, and give you a risk assessment of here's how likely we think uh, it would be that you would prevail on the fair use defense, which really is... It's, it's it's not a, it's presented as a defense in litigation, but really what it is is a carve out um, allowed by the Copyright Act um, that that permits somebody to use property without a license, um, and it has to be there's there's you know various elements that need to be satisfied. Um, but the in recent years, the most important uh, point that courts have uh, focused on is is how transformative the work is. Um, did you change it into something else? Did you change the meaning or message? Um, how different is it? Um, and the Supreme Court is actually considering its first fair use case, well, non-software fair use case in, in, in many years, uh, right now having to do with um, uh, Andy Warhol, uh, an Andy Warhol depiction of a photograph of Prince. Um, and that decision hopefully will shed some more light on what it means to be transformative, which is something that has been hotly litigated for uh, many, many years. Um, and so that will help. That would help inform this theoretical analysis of: is this does this constitute something that's transformative enough that you could prevail on a fair use defense? And then it's up to um, the client to make the decision: is it worth? It, you know, Simon's business analysis, you know, if, if, you know, things are really hot and you think you're going to make a good, uh, you know, a big splash with this property, is it worth taking that risk um, and essentially asking for forgiveness later if, if you get sued? And the other thing to consider in that calculus is the cost of litigation. If, if one does get sued, uh, it's very expensive to even get to a point in a litigation where the fair use defense would be considered. So you usually will end up in a settlement, 95, 97% of cases will settle before trial anyway. Um, and, and that's the most likely outcome. But the, but there's an outlay of costs involved in, in defending against a lawsuit. Um, but cases like this have happened and have resulted in kind of a win for everybody. There was a case dealing with a Star Trek fan fiction short film um, a few years back. Uh, and ultimately that settled. Um, yeah. with some sort of kind of, I don't know whether it was a limited license to be able to do certain things with the property or, and the other type fan fiction type cases where there have been settlements where it's been mutually beneficial from a business standpoint. Um, so that kind of brings us back to the analysis that Simon would do. Well, and, and I, you know, I want to add a, a couple of things to that. The first thing is, if you came to us in any circumstances, forget AI, and said I've suddenly stumbled upon this game with 50,000 active players and I'm making tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars, we, we, we would actually be 
not do, doing some of the same things. Okay, have you formed a discrete company? Are there any partners that you created the game with who haven't yeah. signed paperwork? Do you have insurance? You know, and that's, that's sort of what we do in due diligence anyway. The other thing to note is anytime you've got a case around things like copyright, I'm sure it's other areas, trademark patents as, as, as well. If you were in that situation and there was a litigation and that litigation continues on, it's especially with something that's a new and emerging area implicating something like copyright, it, it ceases to be just you versus, you know, versus that other party. Because what will happen is every single company that has a stake in this one way or the other is going to get involved. And, you know, Scott can tell you more about this, but you have, you know, every, there'll all be all the technology companies will be for, will be filing what we call amicus briefs or the rights holder company, you know, because the, the thing about it is, and, is if you go and you get a judgment, right, you know, at, at one of the higher courts, that then becomes binding on everybody else. And so, you know, the this, I mean, the Warholers is a great example of something going all the way to the you know, Supreme Court. I, I, I think about, you know, the um, something like the Gorka, you know, lawsuit, which was basically bankrolled, right, you know, by somebody. And, and so I suspect that if you found yourself in that position, you would find your life would get quite complicated quite quickly. It's <laughs> my feeling. Do you disagree, Scott? I mean, nope, nope. Litigation is <laughs> litigation makes everybody's life complicated. Uh, nice. Yeah, it's it's not pleasant for anybody except sometimes the lawyers doing the work. And this side of it that, that we just talked about, and thank you for that. That's a an, an an excellent breakdown. I think this side of it does feel like a more recognizable risk management process um, overall. Something something that at least has analogies to things that happen now. Um, if there is this explosion in um, rights problems and also just sheer creativity that these AI tools may spark, and you've got millions of people running around, not necessarily with kind of um, large fifty thousand player games, but there's just there's just this nebulous cloud of issues. Um, one particular thing that I've been looking at quite interestingly is so um, the way that at least one of the major um, um, I, I think it's mid-journey, I may be wrong. One of the major image tools, the way it was trained is it was at least, it was pointed at ArtStation, which is an online place where you can put up, essentially your portfolio works as an artist. It has, it has millions of people. And as far as anyone can tell, they just went in there and, 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 and grabbed the images. They, they, they didn't ask any, they, they asked no one for permission. They trained up their model. Their model now has all that kind of sunk into it. Um, in the last few weeks, the owner of ArtStation, which is Epic, who also makes the Unreal Engine, have gone back and they've essentially applied a tag to ArtStation, which is if, you, if you're if you an artist and you don't want your work to be crawled by an AI's training, you can say that. And Epic has also specified that the um, some of the assets that, that Epic provides for the Unreal Engine as part of this Megascans library, which is a whole bunch of things like chairs and doors and all these sort of things that they can't be used to train AI anyway. Um, but if I'm an artist and I had my stuff up on ArtStation and I realized that 14 months ago, a company trawled through 100 million images and, and my portfolio was one of them and I've become part of the training set for an AI. And, and I'm just a small time artist. I, 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 I don't have millions of dollars. I don't have anything. Um, I'm possibly quite angry at this because I feel like something's been taken away from basically my creative output without my permission. 
aside from some kind of class action lawsuit, um, what might I do? What might my mindset be? How might I approach well, that? Because this is yeah. not large companies fighting. The first each other. thing I ought to say here is that we can't talk about ArtStation or Opine on anything specific. Uh, oh, there. absolutely. Um, yeah, apologies. No, 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 this is part of the course. Uh, you know, but but in in in, in looking at this globally and sort of generally, I would say that, look, it's one of these really interesting things. I think we've talked about this in the past, Colin, you know, anytime you interact with any kind of digital platform now, including a, a, a video game, right? You have to, to scan through, you know, pages of, of privacy policy and, you know, and, uh, and, and user, you know, user, user agreements. And most of us kind of click, through that, right? We have all most most people have put have put things. Whether it, I don't care if it's Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, uh, you know any any video game pr pr you know platform where you're contributing to you know, Roblox, what have you, right? And nobody's actually read those 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 those, those, those pieces. And I in all of these kinds of situations and examples. You know, you're going to have to look at, at at that because it becomes a question of terms of use. And there, are t I, I think there's a couple of pieces. There's my relationship to the platform, right? Like I've given content to the platform. That platform presumably is going to ha have, pursuant to the document I've, you know, that I've clicked and therefore agreed to, is going to have certain rights to use whatever I've contributed. Has it, so the question is, has the platform violated that? But then on the other side of things, there's the relationship between the, you know, the AI company and the platform. So let's say, for instance, um, the AI company, you know, let's use Instagram as an example, goes through and has pulled a bunch of information from Instagram. Well, I would imagine that in doing that, in accessing Instagram, that AI software is, you know, probably somebody there has had to click click on on the or, you know, on some kind of a form, some kind of a contract, and presumably, um, I would be very surprised if any sophisticated company allowed, you know, allowed that kind of trawling and use of, of 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 information. Now, if it's not expressly handled around AI, it's going to be very soon. I imagine, in the light of the fact pattern that you've you, that you've outlined, you know, a lot of these kinds of attorneys who specialize in this will be going into expressly. Um, address this kind of thing, so, but but you know so presumably there's there's a breach you know there's a breach there, but that and to me I mean it may have a copyright element to it, but the principal cause of action there isn't necessarily copyright infringement. It's some kind of breach of the terms of service. Probably there might be privacy implications in there as well, but it becomes really really it becomes really really complicated, and but then you know in. But the other piece here with all of this is going to be, let's say, for instance, my site, you know, I, I have uploaded to one of these sites, right? You know, this one or, or DeviantArt or you know, anything else, right, that, that I can, you know, I can upload my, my artwork. Well, if I am bringing a, any kind of a suit, and especially for something like copyright infringement, I have to prove a case. And, you know, that's because, that's very difficult to do, and it's also very expensive because you'd have to prove 
I mean, Scott can break you down the elements of copyright infringement. I think that actually might be helpful, maybe for the audience to do it, do it briefly. But but as I understand it, you know, it's it's, it's things like access and, and substantial similarity and so on. And to prove that's really is really difficult because it's not it's not a huge undertaking to take something right that's derivative of something else and then say, okay, let's make it a little bit more different, you know. And at what point in time on that continuum are, are you no longer infringing? Um, and that's the, sort of the, the, the you know that's the question. Yeah, um, in terms of a, a cause of action for uh, copyright infringement, you, you have to show uh, that you own the work um, and that something protectable was copied. And in that second part, uh, in order to show that protectable expression was copied, um, you have to show um, access to the work and substantial similarity. Um, and different courts have different approaches to how you gauge substantial similarity. Some require experts at, at the initial stage, and then a, a jury decides later. Others don't. Um, so, you know, if, if you're talking about whether the output from the engine is substantially similar to somebody's work, it's going to be very difficult. Well, it don't necessarily be very difficult. I mean, you'd have to show that the that the the algorithm had access to your work. Your work was fed through it. Um, presumably, that the training data set would be available in discovery to some degree. You could figure out what websites were scraped, um, and if your works were in that website, then you've got a pretty good case for for access. Um, substantial similarity is a different question, and then of course, there's we come back to fair use. Is the uh, is the output that kind of it was done in the style of you, the artist, um, but is not exactly like your work, but kind of has hints of your style. Is that enough for it to be substantially similar? Maybe, maybe not. Styles are not copyrightable, but specific elements of a, of a particular work uh, could be. Um, and, and then I think it's a separate question of, of the scraping, right? The, the um, amassing of all of this data um, inherently has to involve, I think, unless technologically I, I'm, I'm misspeaking here, but there, there has to be some copying. Um, the, the, the computer program has to access this work somehow. Um, and the ingestion of that work, if it involves copying, could be infringing. Unless... That could be infringement. The, the creation of the digital copy to move it from, from X to Y into the database could, it, could, could itself be a copyright infringement but here's the thing colin you know what should already be clear here is that if you're an artist making you know five figures you know you're already not pursuing this 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 this, yes. this, this, yeah. this case yeah. it, it unless it's a class it. action yeah unless it's a, exactly unless it's a class action unless or unless you're sort of privately wealthy with a point to to prove you're being bankrupt which is like the peter Thiel kind of a case you know yeah. I, I mean you're just you know you, and, and then it becomes it becomes quite you know, quite difficult there because, you know, then the law, you know, arguably isn't protecting artists. Although, frankly, I've seen enough of this already to know that the people on the other end, the AI, you know, proponents would say, well, I'm creating things using my, my, my tools. So it's, it's, it's really, 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 really tricky. Um, it's really, really tricky. Uh, you know, it, clearly it's become a little bit of a moral issue. I mean, I think we've all seen this now, you know, yeah. on social media where, you know, people are posting, um, you know, no AI or, or writing, you know, blog posts about how it's, you know, 
but but uh, but I also call me cynical. Uh, you know, that's not going to stop the machine of capitalism. And if there's money to be to be made, you know, it, moral objections aren't going to get you aren't going to get you too too, too far. Um, Those same moral yeah. objections have come up in in you know prior evolutions of technology. Um, the the cam the, yes. the camera you know photographs gonna, was going to put painters out of business Photoshop was going to put photographers out of business it's it, it's the same argument but you can't help but wonder if it's di- if this time is different um, I I do th- yeah this is this is really interesting yeah I, I yeah. do think that that the artists and you know have a valid concern um, and a lot a lot of people feel as though. Um, you know, their work is going to be outsourced to machines to some degree. I mean, and, and that may happen, but there also may be new opportunities that arise for people with certain skill sets um, because of this technology. So it's it's really impossible to know how much of a problem this is going to be. Do I think it'll be a problem for artists? Yes. Um, yeah. Did did some did some people lose work when when prior iterations of technology came out? I'm sure, and I'm sure it will happen again. And it's and it's unfortunate. Um, and there are also things that probably can be done to move move things in a different directions so that people who are skilled can still make use of those skills and make a living out of it. Um, to, to Simon's point, you, these types of objections are not going to stop the engine from moving. It's just how do we do it in a way that's fair for everybody um, and that can keep people in work, especially creative people who you know, put a lot of time and effort into this stuff. And now they're saying, well, well you feed feed and, this and into a machine it. and it does it. I mean, it's very easy for me, you know, for, for, it would be easy for one to say to an artist, well, you should really get ahead from this and retrain now as a AI supervisor. But if you're an artist and your heart's in that, you might not want to do it. But yep. the other thing is, and we were talking about this before we started re- recording is, you know, we can't, we can't just sit here and say, oh, poor artist, isn't that, you know, because this is going to implicate much more than than, than 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 art. I mean, I know in, in, in sort of, you know, uh, prose and text writing of all kinds, advertising, marketing, it's going to be implicated there. I mean, Scott, in to a certain degree, the legal the legal business. You know, it's going to uh, initially with things like I imagine um, document review. It probably already is being used. Um, you know, probably proof. You know, proofreading, correcting of things. Um, but. You know, we've seen this, and obviously, it's going to massively implicate education as, as well. I mean, I saw you posted that, that Colin. I, I, I agree, and maybe you want to restate your sentiments for for the audience. But they're going to have to find a completely different way of evaluating uh, students. I mean, I remember when I was in school in England, and, and, and in Carter '95 came out on DVD, and at some point in time, they had to tell us. You can't just copy and paste things from Encarta, right? <laughs> and so what you would do is you would look at your Encarta and then you would, you know. So, but now you can have, I mean, it, it just makes plagiarism detection very, very difficult. And so clearly, you know, in my mind, as somebody who's not a professional educator, you have to move to like a, you know, a, 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 a verbal or an oral discussion type of type of a format for evaluating students. But that is not what the teachers have been trained in, 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 in doing. So this is going to, it, it's really going to, implicate society much more much more broadly and it will create new jobs but it's not going to create enough new jobs i don't think to replace the ones that potentially going to are going to be made are going to be made um you know redundant um yeah yeah and and we haven't even started talking about 
the implications around sort of deep fakes and the rest, which, you know, I mean, I have a, I have a, you know, a personal stake to some extent insofar as, um, you know, the entertainment business, right? Like modification of performance, um, you know, body scans uh, and face facial scans that now could be co-opted and used for all kinds of, you know, sort of purposes, but then also things like you've got, um, uh, you know, deep fakes involving uh, public figures of politicians, those kind of things could be quite scary from a political perspective. Uh, revenge pornography. I mean, the, the the applications of this are are very very broad and quite and quite frightening. Uh, it's it's a very good point, and, and and I think this is a really good stage in a conversation um, to do that thing of pulling out a little. I, I I think we've had some really interesting sections on kind of worked examples of direct implications, and now if if we take that longer lens, so I I absolutely take the point that. Um, every cycle of strong technology change has always brought some version of this kind of disruption. Um, one way of looking at the original Luddites is actually that they were basically in, they, they were engaged in industrial negotiation when they destroyed machinery because they were workers who were being displaced by machines. Um, much more recently, um, it's, it's often forgotten that when essentially digital image tools, especially Adobe, came out in the 80s and early 90s, there was an incredible uproar about even the, the, the foundational ideas of being able to copy and alter images. And those changes were disruptive. All of these changes are. But there is a real question here where, very much to um, Scott's point, is it f so fast and so comprehensive this time across so much of knowledge work that it ends up being an, a something different from the cycles we've seen before? Um, on, a, on, a, on a scratch pad thing of just basically engaging with the companies that I work with over the past few months, and almost every single one of these companies can sketch you out pretty fast. They go, this is how we would end up um, losing this percentage of the jobs just just using these tools and and they're not trying to be cruel and they're not trying to be ruthless they're saying look if this productivity increase from this tool equals this this these people are no longer necessary these are these are very real implications over the over the short term but um if if we assume that there's a challenge coming for the ability of governments and regulators and i think social structures in general to absorb this kind of change um what are potentially um, smart or positive or strong ways to move forward because the question for everyone over the next year is going to be um, once we once we stop the freak out once we actually have to go okay this this is here the machines are going to machine we can't stop that how do we approach it um, I'd, I'd love both of your thoughts on sort of those those wider questions of okay so what do we do Colin, I fear you may be coming to the wrong people for wide uh, for wide ranging <laughs> policy uh, decisions about this because I, this is a this is going to be a very and obviously it depends on the on on the on the scope. But let's say theoretically, and we'll just use the United States because Scott and I are here. This this knocks you know ten twenty million people out of work. Let's say hypothetically, which I think it could. Um, it, 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 it could that sort of you know as I think you've characterized that sort of middle knowledge worker type you know people who don't necessarily have to be physically in a place um, although frankly I think that, that even those even things like food service and so on I mean between uh, you know uh, I went and got lunch today and I and I tapped on a screen to order it and then somebody gave it to me you know um, 
you know, then it, it just becomes very difficult because I don't, I just don't know, I don't know how those those roles get get replaced. So, but by the same token, in all, like let's say use your you, use your advertising copy right type of thing right. So let's say you're a major marketing advertising agency and you can suddenly downsize by twenty five percent because you don't need those roles anymore. Well, what's the function of, of an advertising agency? It's to start. It's to help sell things to the public, and the public can, can only buy things if they're earning money in order to exchange money for goods and services, as, as Homer Simpson once said. So, so, so then you're getting into into you know, as I said before, like all sorts of other you know, down the line, the inevitable conclusion is is this you know, recognition of this discussion around you know, universal basic income and everything else. Because, uh, and I know it's fascinating. But I saw I saw a Twitter thread yesterday which was predictions made in 1923 about uh two, 2000 to 23 and it was you know a mix of of uh of quite fascinating things like you know curly hair is going to be the rage you know, for, for men you know amusing sort of flippant things and things that you know actually hit you know quite close to, to you know to, to the bone in certain uh, you know aspects and respects um but you know, I, I I I think it does become a much sort of more futuristic world, and, and there's, there's always this this sort of view as of like any science fiction or anything else. Is it going to be for the betterment of society, right? Like like those predictions from 1923 that we would all work four hours a day because of electricity, right? That was literally one of the predictions. <laughs> well, no, that didn't happen. We we ended up working the same or or, or, or more, right? Um, you know, that, 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 that there's one version of this where it frees people up, you know, and 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 and, yeah, and, and people can can do things and create things, and we can consume this, and we can, you know. But then there's the other world of this, which I fear is what actually is going to happen is that it will lead to greater acceleration of the concentration of wealth in certain people, which has basically been that's been the path of the last hundred years, the last the last ten years. The rich get richer, right? The people who control the technology companies the data, the patents, all of the rest. Well, now if you owe, you know, that could also be, 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 be another, another outcome here. And, and that's why I fear it's, you know, that, that, that's what I hope it, it is, not, is not the case because I just don't think that's gonna be a functioning society um, at all. And, 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 the, and the education piece is also huge, you know, because, because if you no longer, it's kind of this thing, it's like, you know, I mean, we all we all have a generation where, you know, we were obviously and, and kids still are right taught to do mathematics right in their heads and everything else. Well, as an adult, you never don't have access to a to a calculator or to Excel. You know, I, so it just it, it, you know, but that's just the, the function of technology. Well, what's the role of uh, of reading and writing and written communication and all the things that, frankly, the bedrock of my profession, if it can be done by a computer? Yeah, I. There's, there's. Oh, go ahead, Carl. I, I, w I was just going to say, as, as I believe an art aficionado, which makes me believe a fundamental optimist. Scott, do you have any, any perspective around this? Because it's, it's a very strong view. Yeah, and and I and I, it's one I, uh, I respect, and and I, I don't doubt is is very, uh, very possible. Um, I, you know, I, I, my mention of kind of prior, um waves of technology having kind of a similar effect wasn't you know meant to 
downplay the severity of this one. I, I, I think that this very well may be the one that's different. That could be the tipping point that really has significant um, uh, implications for creators and, and people who are not on the, on the tech side, um, which is why I think uh, that regulation and, and legislation need to happen sooner rather than later. Um, and, you know, as cynical as I am about whether Congress will, will do anything about this, there's there's likely to be strong enough lobbying um, on both sides to make some sort of legislation possible um, in the coming years. Uh, you know, there have been uh, bipartisan bills that have been passed, not necessarily in this space, but um, that have that have been surprising. And maybe there will be a consensus um, to revisions in the Copyright Act. Um some sort of privacy, you know, federal privacy laws that will protect against things like, uh, you know, deep fake and revenge porn, which a lot of that is, is on the state by state basis now. Um, but I think that's really what's going to have to happen. If, if uh, the prediction that Simon has that, you know, somewhat dire, it's going to have to be legislated uh, away or or cabined a little bit to try to protect people who won't necessarily be able to protect their livelihoods otherwise. Yeah, that'll be the really interesting thing, and, and that brings it back to the fact that you know, well, I mean, I, I forget the word for it, but but what's the average age of our you know of our politicians, right? I mean, do you, do you really entrust them yeah. to be able to to un? Gerontocracy. There you go. That's that's well exactly what I was yeah. I, I was looking for. But I'm actually I, I pull up a web page here. It says by the year 2025. 85 million jobs will be replaced by machines with AI. However, 97 million new jobs will be created due to AI. So, yeah. so you know, look, and just from scanning it, it seems like it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it feels very sort of Pollyanna-ish to me, but that, you know, less manual work for humans, more time making decisions and evaluating uh, and everything and everything else. And, and I hadn't even thought about one of the areas that it has here, which is uh, medical diagnosis, which mm. is, you know, which is, 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 is great because, um, you know, if, if that can often make the, make the difference, if it can help in that respect, that's, you know, that, that's super. Um, but, you know, to me, it's again, call me, call me cynical. It's a, it is a big ask of people, right. To ask people who aren't in analytical roles, if, if the, now the, those are the decision making the analytical like that's no because there are a lot of people who are very happy doing you know those kinds of jobs so it's 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 going to be a big it's going to be a big challenge i am eminently unqualified to talk about anything that we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes because i'm just an entertainment lawyer i mean seriously like, this has got to like 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 big picture stuff it's like whoa hang on simon don't overstep. You were okay on that last podcast talking about, you know, Elder Ring. That was fine. Was that say, was all right. Are you qualified to talk about Elden Ring, you, you Simon? Can talk really? About, like, entertainment <laughs> contracts, but don't don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> no, it's it, but but this is this is the thing that, that I really enjoy about a lot of these conversations, and especially this one. This idea of um, we we have started in, in a very concrete place. We have started with the nuts and bolts of if I came to you today. But this issue, more than almost anything else, does naturally extend out beyond that. And that's why I really appreciate both of you giving these perspectives. Um, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd, I'd like to close out the podcast with um, my own version of this. And this is very, I mean, you talk about unqualified, Simon. Um, this is the version of someone who went to a Rudolf Steiner school. And anyone who wants to look up what a Rudolf Steiner school is will be completely unsurprised by the mad hippie-ish nature of what I'm about to say. Um, 
I, I share very much the concerns that basically the overall cadence of um, our, our, our social structures and our regulators will not keep up with the technology. Um, we see this in New Zealand in very concrete ways. Some of the companies that I work with, we basically watch the things that government asks for in terms of technology when going out to agencies versus what the technology is capable of. And every single year, there's a bigger and bigger gap. The gap between the capability of government to, to even really sensibly engage with these issues keeps on falling behind the actual state of the art. So I, I, I do agree that that fundamental difference in rhythm between tech capability and essentially social structures is probably the question, I would argue, of the next sort of 10 to 20 years in terms of basically which way this goes. But for me, um, you talk about education, Simon. I, th I suspect that all three of us came up through the education systems that were largely birthed in the 19th century. And the historical reason for a lot of why the, the core roots of classroom instruction exist is that they were preparing people to be factory workers and to be clerks. Um, all of the core rhythms of that type of education emerged from that. Um, in so many ways, over, especially over the past 15 years, we've all been working very hard to turn each other and ourselves into robots. We've, we've tried to fit ourselves into the algorithms of social media and to likes and shares and all of the things that essentially large advertising platforms want us to do. We came up in a world that was very, very clear about trying to make us into people who could fit into quite niche roles in society. Um, we, were, we were prepared for careers that seemed more predictable and more obvious and more functional than any career now is likely to be. So part of, part of me thinks that we're actually all, as humans, we're a lot weirder than we let on and than we allowed ourselves to be. And this whole process of really the past 200 years where we've increasingly tried to kind of fit in with the machines and maybe the, the ultra-optimistic hippie kind of view of this is maybe if the machines get so good at being machines if they can ultimately take over almost all of those structures of society if they can largely build regulation if they can handle running companies pretty much of themselves companies are just machines maybe humans will finally realize we were going in the wrong direction all along maybe we should really let our freak flag flag fly and just go weird go into the places that machines and algorithms and ai can never chase us and I have no idea what that looks like, but it certainly doesn't look like a world dominated by Facebook and Instagram and so many metrics and everyone fitting into these tiny little pockets of data. And so the, the kind of weird humanist in me thinks that one of the best outcomes of that, um, aside from the very real economic consequences, is maybe everyone starts kind of setting out for the frontier of their imagination instead of turning backwards into all of this giant mass of what we've sort of made ourselves over the past 20 years or the past 200. That's the, the deeply optimistic side of we can re-educate ourselves to be a lot more human and a lot less machine, if that makes any sense. I, th I think yeah. that goes to kind of what Simon was saying before about, um, y you know, computers taking over a lot of uh, kind of automated or, or automatable tasks so that people can have more free time yes. or enjoy more, you know, 
being more creative. And it's, there's certainly something to be said for that. I, I, I hope that that's true and that, you know, when Skynet becomes self-aware, it doesn't blow up the world and it actually lets us to lets us be, uh, you know, more human and more interesting and more, uh, you know, disconnected from uh, from the kind of umbilical cord to the computers and social media that we've kind of grown over the last 20 years. It's certainly blown right, up so, the world, and, and, Scott. I mean, I, I, there's nothing to, you, you can't argue about that. I mean, we're doomed. It's just a question as to, as to when. Um, I, you know, I, I, think it's, I think that's quite an optimistic, uh, you know, viewpoint. And it's, it's interesting because there are a couple of, of, of sort of things packed, packed into there. You know, I do agree with the assessment of the educational system, um, particularly, you know, as I've, my view of people in the in the you know coming out of the the u.s system um there's not a lot of critical thinking that's that's taught the whole thing is run a little bit like the henry ford model with your scantrons right but but at the end of the day and then you have you know college right go to the most prestigious college that you can then a company can hire you based on the brand of that college and know that you're going to fit in you know into the, into that that piece and you know clearly the people who have who have you know, reinvented themselves, reinvented the world, and done interesting things. Very often, don't fit into those kinds of those kinds of molds. So, can this technology give that that kind of access? And look, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the international international aspect as well, because you know, presumably, this is going to create opportunities for people in Asia, in Africa, you know, uh, as 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 well who wouldn't have had the means, you know, the means uh, previously. I just, you know, it's just. You know, it's just hard for me to imagine that there's going to be a, a wholesale revolution in, in, in how, you know, in sort of human, the human experience, because I just don't think that's the way that the world is, is, is wired, you know, and I think that, like the notion that, you know, people can express themselves more and be themselves and all of this, well, that in part is, is, is predicated on other people allowing them to do that. And I don't believe that that all people actually want that. In fact, if you look at the human history, that you know, human history has been based upon, in large part, um, keeping certain groups and keeping certain classes, you know, sort of subordinated. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, look now, now we get into a whole world. I'm, I'm starting to think about in terms of the societal impact of, 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 of this. Um, but look, it, it's it's clearly starting to fray a little bit the edges already with one looks at this sort of swelling anti-work movement. Um, you know, it, it's, um, I, and I think the internet has been a big enabler um, in that. Um, but again, uh, you know, I just, I just do deals for TV shows, man. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's already been getting weird and maybe it needs to get a lot weirder would be my, my thought um by the way simon i i i smell a 10-year bet i i i smell 2033 we meet in the rings of saturn to to compare notes on on whether it all worked out or whether or whether it really didn't this, this I, is I awesome. hope i'm around uh in, in 2033 that would be the first the first you know uh, accomplishment <laughs> um but no i mean look this is going to be and that's the interesting thing, you know, I mean, as, get, as we've all talked about on a daily basis, it's another post on LinkedIn, it's another development, it's another, you know, piece. But but that's where it really is going to be interesting is to look back at, in, you know, in 2033 and be like, wow, we were completely wrong or or 
wow, remember when everyone thought that AI was going to be a thing? Or, or, beep, boop, 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 beep, boop, boop, because we're all machines. <laughs> or or we'll just, or we'll just think, predictions. think to each other and pass it through now, the microchips embedded in our brains. Now, now, now Colin, I've been on the, I've been on the podcast uh, before, and for those listening for the first time, you should check out my other episodes. They're, they're, they're highly entertaining. But, but Scott has not. And one thing I, you know, and we haven't really done the intro. Well, I should, one thing I should advise you about Scott is that Scott's actually a musician uh, who plays in our, awesome. in our uh, law, law firm band, uh, Redacted. He plays the bass. He's also a, a big, is it fair for me to say heavy metal fan? Without, yes, sir. Big head breath of that. Nice. Um, and uh, that's an area. That's another area where I think we're going to see, you know, um, music scores, um, compositions for advertising. And then ultimately, you know, it, it wouldn't be too hard to, to compose. I'm sure this has probably happened already, right? Like, Scott, name three of your favorite bands. Metallica, Iron Maiden, Bad Religion. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So let's, throw, let's throw them in. And then, you know, the question is, well, what, what happens if there's a banging tune, but it's but it's created by a machine and forget about copyright and ownership. Like what, what happens to the soul of the music of, 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 of the art? It's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. There are, um, um, not to take us off track and then I'll, I'll wind us up in a sec, but um, talking to people who I'm pretty sure know, there are very strong rumors that um, along with GPT-4, which is the next big language model, that the next thing after that this year is a music model that does exactly what you say. And people have, have said that it is um, quite eerie. And it's I imagine so. You know, and it's, I, it, it, if you look at like Pandora, you know, the, uh, not Pandora, um, the thing you tap uh, and, and, and it kind of, you can identify oh, the music. Shazam. Shazam. Like the roots of this have been around for some time, right? Identifying trends, breaking down music. Well, Pandora too. Aspects. Pandora too. Yeah. I mean, oh, the right, whole music, right, DNA, music DNA project. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've heard similar things that uh, music generation uh, AI is, is on the way, if not here already. Uh, and I also remember from this is a couple of years ago, and I don't remember exactly what the platform was, but it was something that some program that was able to create like a nirvana song that never existed by ingesting all of the other nirvana songs and and it was a couple it was like nirvana Jimi hendrix and maybe something else uh and it really sounded like a nirvana song and it's it's bizarre it, it, it was really um quite disturbing well, and that's and that's the piece we haven't touched on at all um but it's a big piece which is is reviving dead artists right because Clearly, um, we're not. We're very close to a world where, you know, you could do a pretty. I mean, look, with Indiana Jones, right, is being de-aged. Where you can have these classic actors, you can create a performance. You have, you feed all their dialogue in, so you have basically all of the different, you know, phonemes and components of their voice. But music comes comes first, and, and there are going to be a spate of lawsuits over this because um, there could be a spate because oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, the Kurt Cobain example. You know, Freddie, Freddie Mercury. You know, all of these kinds of things. You can, uh, I, 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 yeah, that's going to come first. I think there's going to be a massive because look how much music litigation, high stakes music litigation there is already. Um, that's going to be an area to, that's going to be an area to watch, really, uh, yep. and all the same kind of analysis. You know, so uh, busy, busy time for for, for litigators. Yeah, a busy and and very interesting time for us all. Um, I 
I smell a sequel conversation as well around that. Um, thank you both so much for your time. Um, this has been excellent. I enormously enjoyed having both of you on. Scott, thank you very much for jumping into the madhouse with us. I, th this, is, this has been Oh, it's great. my pleasure. Thank you so um, much for uh, both of you for getting me involved. Really appreciate it. Um, we, we will stay on the line after the podcast finishes, but where can people find both of you and learn um, basically more about what you're doing and read your work? LinkedIn and, and our website, I guess. Um, both. Cool, we'll leave links to that in the show notes. Yeah, both, both Simon and I are, are, are active on LinkedIn, and I attribute my, my newly found uh, uh, voice on LinkedIn much to uh, his inspiration. Um, and, uh, well, it's, it's, just, it's just repetition, right? If, if you badger somebody enough. Now, what Scott doesn't know is actually I created an AI tool to, <laughs> to, to, to send him a message every couple of weeks on Twitter. Uh, no, it's, 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 it's good. And, you know, I would really, I would truly say, like, it's an area where I posted a few things sort of recently because it's of interest to me. But really, you should follow Scott because a lot of this cutting edge analysis and this fundamentally integral, yeah. uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, analysis of the copyright, you know, he's good. He's totally on top of alongside you know obviously you know several other uh you know lawyers around the around the world yep. but um you know it's uh it's really really it's just it's really really interesting and, and thank you so much for having us you know colin and giving us the opportunity to talk about uh you know some of these some of these these things because it's um it's it's crazy <laughs> it's crazy man it, it is it it is crazy indeed. Um, thank you both very much. This has been awesome. Wonderful. Thanks, Colin. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.